Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, Ali Tomaseb, investor at DCVC and author of Super Founders. Uh, Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hey, Rick. I'm glad to be here. So, uh, Ali, uh, thanks for for coming on the podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself as as an investor and then introduce DCVC as well, and uh, and then we'll we'll get to the book. For sure. So I'm, I'm a partner at DCBC. We are a Silicon Valley fund. We invest in deep tech, so companies that are solving complex engineering or scientific problems, anywhere from space and building rockets to, to biomanufacturing and synthetic biology. Uh, we have over $2 billion under management and have invested in over 10 uh, unicorns. Some of our companies recently went public, like Epcelera, Desktop Metal, Recursion Pharma, and we've invested in a number of other companies like Lymergen, Rocket Lab, Illumio, Sentinel One. I am a a data driven investor. I look at the, I try to look at the data, and I I spent the last four years writing this book, which has forty thousand data points, and a lot of my investments are data driven as well or metrics driven. So I some of the companies I've invested in are Carbon Health, which is a uh, healthcare provider that has a tech-first urgent care and primary care service, uh, employs over 1,500 people. I uh, am a unicorn now. I'm a board member. There's PlotLogic, an Australian company that works on mining and increasing the efficiency in mining of their rare earth metals. Uh, investor in Starkware, which is in the blockchain scalability sector, Acceler in the blockchain interoperability sector, Pano in wildfire protection, and a number of other companies in, in different parts of deep tech. I'm interested in food, ag, new materials, uh, construction, and uh, things like that. Ali, what, why don't you describe, uh, d- describe the, the main purpose of the book and, and uh, w- w- what can people expect from reading it? Sure. So it was about four years ago that I was thinking, what is it that actually differentiates billion-dollar companies from you know, the, all these you know, another 90-something percent of companies that do not go anywhere or are smaller outcomes? And if there is anything that fundamentally differentiates between them. And a lot of people talk from gut feeling or single anecdotes or their personal experiences about what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, sometimes I hear these and I want to scream, say, okay, that's wrong. That the data is, is, is telling you that's wrong. So I, I started collecting this data, 65 data elements per company, per billion dollar company. And then the same data on a randomly selected group of companies that did not become billion-dollar outcomes. They, they were smaller outcomes or they were bankruptcies or failures. And um, this data encompasses everywhere from the, the founder's background, you know, where they went to college, uh, what they studied, where they worked, what was their career path, what companies they started before, to the idea itself, how the idea was generated, what the competition looked like, what type of pain it was going after, the defensibility factors, the competition to fundraising, you know, how fast they did the fundraising, how frequent they did fundraising, how their you know, fundraising rounds, was it large or small compared to the others? And, you know, how, how to best fundraise and you know, trying to understand from the data how these companies differed from the rest. 
And they do differ a lot in many areas. Uh, and the data shows there's a lot of factors that do not, does not matter at all. Uh, so, you know, leave yourself off the hook for a number of things, but you, you can try to, uh, you know, try to match some other factors to become a successful founder. And, you know, I spent four years, all my weekends and evenings to collect this 30,000 data point data set uh, on these 65 factors per companies. And, uh, you know, spent another two years analyzing the data and interviewing with people. So I interviewed people like Peter Thiel, Eric Yuan, founder of Zoom, Tony Fidel of, you know, iPod, iPhone, and Nest, Tom Prestonverner of GitHub, Keith Raboy of Founders Fund, Alfred Lin uh, of Sequoia, Rachel Carson of Guild Education, Michelle Zatlin of Cloudflare, Neha of Confluent, uh, 15 founders of billion-dollar startups. And, you know, I tried to ask them deep questions about the early days of their companies. Uh, so basically, these interviews kind of color in or add context to a lot of these data. So each each chapter comes with an interview, and that interview is either an outlier to the data or is a representative of the data and is trying to, you know, uh, paint paint more color. And and what did you find? Let's uh, let's let's unpack some of the the biggest takeaways. For sure. So there are two aspects to the things that the book and the study finds. There are things that say these things don't matter, and it's it's mostly around these kind of things that have been stereotyped. Most of them come from media, from the the famous startup stories that makes us think that you know massive successful startups come and look like in a certain shape. So I think there's, because, because of the, 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 the Wozniak and the, you know, the Bill Gates and uh, the Apple stories and the, and the Microsoft stories, I think a lot of people have this thought that most successful startups have exactly two founders. And that's what we also see in a lot of cases. And, you know, when I looked in the data, it seems like the distribution of the number of co-founders that you have among the billion dollar startups and among kind of normal startups that get founded and funded doesn't, you know, it's the same distribution. So if you have a solo founder, you know, one out of every five unicorn has a solo founder and they're as uh, likely as the others to become a unicorn. Um, and then there's like 30 something, 35%, which is two co-founders and that 30% that is three, three co-founders and on and on. But in none of these cases, you know, it increases or decreases your, your chances of success. Um, and that's why sometimes I say, you know, give, give a co-founder title to your kind of first employee that, you know, if, if you can't attract them without giving them a co-founder t- you know, title, just give it um, and, you know, just attract that amazing employee. There's another myth that, you know, a lot of these billion dollar companies or successful companies, they're solving their own personal problems. And that is true for, you know, a number of them, but that, that doesn't apply to all of them or doesn't apply to the majority of them. So a big percentage of billion dollar startups, it was a you know result of a deliberate ideation process. These people you know, went through one year, two years of kind of searching for the right idea. And we only hear the good part of it when they interview. And they kind of link it to you know how how this kind of linked to their previous thing that they did or how it linked to the thing that they were doing when they were a kid. But actually, when, when you go deeper, you understand these, these people spent a year, spent two years just jumping from one idea to another and one industry to another to, to find the idea that, that worked. And in most cases, it was not a personal problem. Then the, the other thing is like industry experience. And you know, a lot of people are looking for the right people with industry experience. And it turns out it doesn't matter. It does not increase or decrease your chance of success if you have or do not have industry experience. 
And 70% of founders of kind of tech companies did not have industry experience. It's a different story in biotech and hard sciences. Kind of 80% of people in those industries have had uh, industry experience. What else? There's, you know, there's things about age. Um, you know, there's this famous uh, Harvard Business Review article that says, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs are 45 and they're more likely to found businesses. And then you look at VCs and, you know, a lot of VCs are looking into universities, looking into people two years with two years of experience out of Google or Facebook. And these tend to be, you know, people in their early 20s. And when I, when I compare the data from these billion dollar unicorn startups with the startups that, you know, had, had received a little bit of funding and didn't get anywhere to kind of the average startup. Again, there's no difference in the distribution. So age doesn't, doesn't correlate at all with success. Being younger or older doesn't. Then we have dropouts. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about dropouts and think, you know, college dropouts, that's, that's the majority or that, that's the big part of, you know, startups. Uh, only 4%. Uh, of billion dollar startups are started by dropouts. There are more PhDs. There are more uh, people with law degrees. Uh, there are more professors than college dropouts uh, among you know billion dollar startup founders. And it doesn't make them lesser likely uh, or more likely to start billion dollar companies. But just just putting it in in the context, we have the same thing in like schools. You know, schools are good. Going through you know having that that Stanford brand is good. And, you know, I know you, you're working on, on, on deck, but there were as many founders, founding CEOs of billion dollar startups that attended the schools, which ranked 100 or kind of lower, the higher 100 or worse, that started billion dollar companies as there were people who went to top 10 schools. So it's like a, it looks like a barble distribution. There are these people who have, you know, the perfect pedigree and the perfect resume and there, there are also people who do not have that, and they have kind of built their way into becoming a billion-dollar founder by starting companies and starting projects and kind of getting there. You know, there, there are things about, you know, you have to start a new category or you need to, you know, start a company in a white space. You know, there are a lot of investors, you know, reject companies, you know, this is a crowded space. Turns out 70% of billion-dollar startups had strong competition when they started out, and they were not is starting a new category. A lot of people say, you know, if you start a new category, you're more likely to create larger outcomes. You know, the $100 billion companies are in new categories. That's also wrong. Actually, the data showed the companies that were competing for share in an existing market, existing large market, they created on average larger companies than those that created the new category. You know, there, there's a lot. It's, it's, you know, it's 300 pages of book, you know, 50, there's like 50 charts and facts like this in the book, you know, around what type of needs these billion dollar companies were starting. You know, if you're going after saving people's time or money, you were more likely to create a billion dollar company than if you were going after convenience, entertainment, or even health. And, you know, we talked about market share. And if you were taking market share from others, a majority of these billion dollar startups were, were that way. That's an awesome overview. What I'd like you to do is go through some of those points and ask you why you think those misconceptions exist. Sure, let's do that. So whether it's uh, whether it's age or whether it's uh, the co-founder or single founder, whether it's the schools, what, what, why don't you pick a few and say what, why you think? Like basically, you know, there's probably going to be some resistance to some of your conclusions even though it's given. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how, you know, which ones do you think will be more readily accepted versus, versus not and, and why that is? 
Right. I think you're seeing some of these things change a little bit, like the solo founder thing. I think it used to be a problem, um, maybe, you know, six, seven years ago. I, I see it less and less happening now. I think there, there are more people who are receptive to the idea of, you know, solo founder now. And I think a big part of this is coming from the famous anecdotes. And that's, that's basically what, what data is trying to, you know, dispel. Because it's not like we have only five successful companies. We have over $200 billion companies founded in the past 15 years. And, you know, the, there's the Facebooks and the Ubers of the world that make it to the media and there are books written about them. And, you know, every, every you know, startup founder gets to read about them. But there's not a book or story or article or interview about every one of them or that people remember. So I think a big part of these misconceptions come from the fact that some of these stories get more famous than the others. And they happen to be in a certain way. They happen to be the two founder situation. They happen to be the college dropout situation. And that's why, you know, there's some of these, uh, I think, biases exist in, in our industry and among people, and some of them are getting solved. So with, with the solo founder situation, I think it's, it makes intuitive sense that, you know, if you know something and if you're technical, I think this is the, this is the most common thing that I hear. If you're a technical founder, you need someone business savvy and the other way around. And when I actually looked into data, uh, this is very weird. Uh, and very counterintuitive. If you were a technical CEO of a unicorn, it was more likely that your second person in the company, whether it was a CTO, COO, whatever, was a technical person as well. And if you were a non-technical CEO of a billion-dollar startup, it was more likely that your second person was also non-technical. And I think the reason that this happens is, is where these people work and where they find, find co-founders, if you are in your CS degree student at Stanford, chances are your friends are also CS degrees at Stanford. And, you know, that's, that's what you're doing. And if you have been a biz dev person in, you know, a bunch of companies, chances are your colleagues or people, you know, the best, and you're going to start companies. They are a salesperson from another company as well, or another colleague that works in biz dev, or, you know, you've started companies together. So it's, it's very counterintuitive that this kind of notion of, you know, you need to pick one technical person and one business savvy person and pair them up together and be exactly two people and like this, that's just wrong. Um, and the data kind of dispels this. Yeah. What were some things that you tried to learn that might've been harder to find the, find the data or what's, uh, what didn't make the book that you were ho- hoping might, might make it? The hardest part of the data collection was about, you know, what the world looked like back in 2007 or back in 2009 when these companies were started. So because of my study and my book is, is all about the fundamentals and day one rather than the momentum. So in, in my book, I don't discuss, you know, if the, your year one sales or growth or months over months growth looked like this. Uh, you looked more like these billion dollar companies. I do not talk about them. It's, it's fundamentally about, you know, this was the team. This was the backgrounds. This is the idea. This is where the idea was generated. This was a competition. This is what the market looked like. And the hardest part was kind of going back in time and understanding what the market for this category looked like back in 2007 and how many competitors were around. So it took a lot of research, a lot of kind of going, re- reading old articles, cold emailing some of these founders and asking them, um, to understand, you know, what the world of this specific space looked like, you know, 10 years ago. And if it was easier, I think I could have found more insights about the market dynamics 
and about the competition, there's some higher level insights that I found and mostly around you. What, what, the, what was the problem you were solving? What kind of need you were solving? And a little bit on competition and the market dynamics. But, you know, if there was more data, we could have kind of gone deeper into those, those type of features and dynamics. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Going, going sort of one, one by one on a few of them, why do you think that you don't need to be technical anymore? Uh, and, and is it sort of a timing thing and that that's, that's only more recent or is it, has it you often been, been that way or how do you think about that? Yeah, I'm not saying you, you, you do not need to be technical. I would still recommend people, you know, to, to pick up things and try to, you know, prototype things themselves. The way I have defined technical for this research is, is more rigorous. Like, I think there's a lot of people who, who can go and, you know, learn how to code and do a small prototype themselves. I, I wouldn't consider that like technical, technical. You wouldn't remi- remain as the CTO of that company for the next 10 years. For that, you would actually need to have, and, and there's a lot of ways that you can actually properly learn and get the experience and, you know, becoming a, a technical person. But, you know, you, you could be in sales, you could be in business development, you could have just started companies before. And what I found is the thing that transfers from one company to another, from one experience to another is these soft skills, is these connections, is your ability to, to manage a team, is your ability to go through crisis, from crisis to crisis, is your ability to fundraise, to tell a story, to pitch. This is what it stays. And you can learn whatever technical thing is that you need to learn about, you know, fintech, going from fintech to databases to, you know, building rockets, you can learn that and you can become technical in that, in that space for the extent that you need to get, get things going. And then you can hire the right people to come in and continue doing that. So it seems to me from, from this research that these soft skills are a lot more important. And you can see that in the fact that, you know, a lot of these founders did not have domain expertise uh, in the industry that they were going after. And a lot of these founders, you know, uh, were not technical in a sense that, you know, they have been a, you know, engineering manager for five years, or they have been, you know, a leading a team of 10 people of coders or software engineers for the past, you know, couple of years. That makes a lot of sense. What about the the husband and wife in particular? Did you, did you segment it out that way? Because that, that's always something, that, or even, you know, part, a romantic partner. <laughs> that's always bias <laughs> people have. For sure. Yeah, I think that that is also a bias. Uh, I generalize it as, you know, family members or people who are, you know, uh, connected in in that sense. And yeah, that's that's another bias. And when you look at these, you know, billion dollar companies, there is a good number of them that have husband and wife, you know, fiancés, brothers, uh, father and son. Uh, these, These family relationships exist, you know, three brothers. Uh, again, father and son, two brothers, uh, husband and wife. These exist. And I think, you know, as long as they can address some of the challenges that, you know, some VCs bring up, and I think that's fair around governance, around, you know, who the employees can trust to bring up, you know, their concern about a CEO or CFO too. There are some of these, you know, governance concerns that as long as they are addressed, I, I don't see any problems in that. And the data shows, you know, uh, there's a good number of these billion dollar companies that were started by people who were related. Yeah, that's encouraging. And, and the, the, let's go on the the Ivy League stuff, like well, or college stuff. One is, I mean, the stat around as many attended top 10 schools as went to schools, not even ranking in the top 100 among billion dollar startup founders. Why do you think that is? 
I think I, I definitely observed this this barble distribution when I looked at the data. There are people who had the perfect pedigree. They you know they had they went to the top school, they worked at a great great company, and they went on and they started this company and it worked out. And so it looks like you know the perfect shiny resume. And those were kind of one type, and they were one extreme. And then there is this other extreme of the people who you know you've never heard of their school. It's, you know, they studied something, you, you kind of know it's those people who like didn't care about the school, what they studied, they were doing something else. And, you know, they started a company when they're young and it was, you know, they weren't even necessarily technical. In some cases they were, and, you know, they, they, they were, you know, they coded a game or something. And so it, it seems like there are these two different branches of, you know, the people with the perfect resume and the people who went on and started companies, started projects, went one thing after another. And, you know, it took them nine years or 10 years or whatever, and it was hard for them to raise money in the earlier ventures. And even in the one that became a billion dollar company, because, you know, they didn't have the, the that shiny resume, uh, but then eventually they made it. So, you know, it's about either doing it back to back or like having that bug for building and stuff, or, you know, on the other hand, you have these people with the, with the perfect resume. And when you compare people in the billion dollar group, to people in the average group, which is people who have raised $3 million on funding uh, from VCs. That's my random group, the average baseline group. And then we have the unicorns. They actually tend to be from better schools. And I think, you know, it seems like the school does matter eventually on average. Probably it gives them better chance of raising funding and better chance of, you know, attracting the right people and better chance of, you know, um, having the necessary networks. And, you know, part of it is just reverse correlation as well. You know, who, who these people were, who their parents were, what kind of, you know, socioeconomic background they're coming from that made it to these top schools. Uh, so it's not, it's not a causal relationship here. But yes, these people who were billion dollar founders, they were more likely to have gone to better ranking schools on average. But it's, it's important to look at the data that is, you know, there's these people who went to top, top, top 10 schools and there is equally, there's the number of founders who just didn't go through that type of a background. And, and that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that was also interesting was just where you found about MBAs and, and you touched on it a bit, but let, let's go deeper. Why do you think people uh, underestimate MBAs or why do you think uh, MBAs have like, is it, is it, and also is it, is it causation or is it correlation? Right. I think that a lot of these things are, are cyclical. So right now, I think there is this uh, bias against, you know, MBAs. You know, why are you wasting a couple hundred thousand dollars in two years of your life on, on getting a degree, right? There's, it's that. And it's in different parts of the industry, right? And even right now, if you go and ask people in traditional industries, they will tell you, no, if you need to have an MBA, if you, need, if you want to progress in your career, you need to go get an MBA. Or if you want to found a company, you need to have an MBA. And then you may go back, you know, 10 years or 20 years and things may, may look the reverse. You know, back then, uh, a lot of these stereotypes that I discussed, I looked back in time and I saw that reverse stereotype was true maybe 15 years ago uh, about, for example, the age thing, right? It used to be that, you know, people were with more experience and older, uh, they were, it was easier for them to raise funding back in, you know, the, the, the early 2000s or the 90s. And now it's kind of the reverse. If you're in your early 20s and, you know, you, you've just kind of 
gone through school, a good school and, you know, uh, a good company, worked in a good company for a couple of years, that might be easier for you to raise funding than if somebody is like, you know, 50, 60 years old. Um, and these things are kind of cyclical. So the same thing on MBA kind of exists that right now the sentiment is kind of, you know, it might not be useful. And we have to see, you know, what happens in the future. But when you look at these billion dollar company founders, uh, I think it's the number is 21%. 21% of these founders had an MBA, uh, obviously on top of their bachelor's. And that's, that's the most common advanced degree after, you know, so it was first MBAs and then master's. And then I have to take a look at the book, but it's, I think, uh, people with law degrees and then medical degrees and then professors and then, PH, and then PhDs and professors. And it, it doesn't increase your chance or it doesn't decrease your chance. When you look at the random group, it's the same distribution as well, uh, more or less. I think it's 20% in the random group and 21% in the billion dollar companies, not a statistically significant difference. Which means, you know, one, investors aren't actually having a bias. Like a lot of people say this. But they actually have invested in people. Like nobody has gone to say, okay, because you had an you know, Harvard MBA, I'm not going to invest in you. That bias kind of maybe exists on Twitter, but doesn't actually exist in reality. And that bias isn't true as well. You know, they performed the same level as uh, other founders. They were slightly more likely, but again, not 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 statistically significant. And you know, there's a, there's a lot of these massive companies anywhere from you know Stitch Fix to to Cloudflare. That where you know people in business school that they thought about you know these ideas or even venture you know the competitions at, at business school the, the pitch pitch perfect competitions at school uh, that came out of this and you know the sentiment may change at at one point you know we, we may go back to this and say hey MBAs are good you know we shouldn't invest in non MBAs and I think the the point of the book is you know forget these proxy rules uh, people may have different career paths and. This thing, having or not having a specific degree or having or not having studied a specific degree, that's, that's, that doesn't matter. And I think I, I tweeted about this and somebody asked me a question, I think, another assumption that, okay, if you were an MBA and founder of a billion dollar company, then you probably had a technical background before that. And I think that's, that's a common, again, comes from that misconception. I looked at the data and 88% of founding CEOs of billion dollar companies who had an MBA did not have a technical background. They came from a business background. They did they did work as someone in the business field. They got an MBA and they founded a billion dollar company. It's really interesting. And 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 maybe talk about just age again more more generally. Like, wh- why do you think people don't sort of have the same instinct for what the right the right age is to start a company, or I would say the optimal age relative to the data? Right. And 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 to, to be you know the data isn't saying that there is a perfect age, right? The data is saying there is no perfect age. You're as or more, you're not more or less likely right. if you're That's finding a I mean. company. And the average, the median age was 34, 34 years old, which is, I think, a little bit older than what people may think. Uh, some people may think now and might be a little bit younger than people in the other parts of the industry may think. So there's this kind of famous Harvard Business Review article that this, this research and talked about this. And when I looked into this paper, the assumptions they have for defining what is a startup and what is a successful startup doesn't quite match the definitions that we have kind of in the startup ecosystem. And that's why, you know, it might be the case that in more traditional industries or in other kind of sectors, being older, being more senior might matter. But, you know, in, in the, and a lot of people say when you're younger, you have, you know, you can take more risks or you're more free to, you know, or you come up with your best ideas in your early 20s. and 
the data is saying, you know, these, these things are wrong and people may come up with their best ideas at whatever age. And it's actually not about the ideas. It's about, you know, you get to a certain point that you, you get the resources to, to execute on them. And what is important is how many companies you've started before or what you have done in terms of starting projects before. So you might be a 20-year-old that have started two projects before this. And this would specifically be like the founders of Brex, which, you know, they, they had started two, two projects, kind of companies, many successes before, even though they were 19. And you might be, you know, 50 years old and you, you may have worked a perfect career and you have never started a company before. And that, that might be a differentiating factor, right? It's not about age specifically. It, your success doesn't correlate with your age, but it does correlate with, you know, how, how much of a bug for building you had, how many side projects you did, how many side hustles you created, maybe companies you created, startups you founded. That does actually correlate with the success. That's really interesting. And, and so why, um, or given all this data, how do you use it as an investor? How, how, you know, I know you've been interested in algorithmic investing as well, or the opportunity to, to be more data-driven investor. Talk a little bit about that. For sure. So I think data in general can be used uh, for being a better investor in two ways. Number one, by reducing bias. So we may unknowingly have certain biases towards certain people with, you know, the, the, the way our brain does, you know, pattern matching. And there are cases where, you know, if you, ha- if you can only pick one investment, if you have two opportunities, but you can pick only one, you may unknowingly go and pick the one that your, brain's li- your brain likes. But if you put it on paper and you actually compare these opportunities and you look at the data and, you know, you, you abstract things like, you know, gender and, you know, race and any of these things that are irrelevant uh, or age or these kind of things. If you abstract these and look at the business, look at the idea, look at the background of the founders, their career path, then you may actually end up making a better decision, which has less bias uh, that's known or unknown to you. And, you know, you have this bias in the way that VCs source. You know, I see a lot of VCs that source basically by going university programs that you're creating that bias right away. You're creating that age bias right away or... You know, investors that take the technical versus non-technical uh, bias or MBA versus uh, all of these biases that people have changes the way they source and look for companies. And that creates a bias. So I think number one, by remo- removing bias and better modeling these companies and, you know, how many risk layers they have. I, look, I like to look at the companies by the risk layers they have or basically the number of miracles that need to happen. And you put that on paper and see, okay, this company, you know, both of them at seed, both of them same valuation, but this one needs five miracles. This other one needs three miracles or three ways to go against the data. Uh, then, you know, you may, you may probably pick the one with three. That's one. Number two is you may actually use this data to, to better source or algorithmically kind of, you know, find opportunities based on, you know, what, what this data tells you. And it's, you know, it's 30,000 data points. You cannot really apply, you know, very good deep learning here. It's, you know, it's enough, but not, not really enough. But you can start by doing, you know, machine learning on this data or, you know, simpler statistical ways to better understand these founders and source opportunities or make, make investment decisions. So, for example, I, I invested in this company called Carbon Health, uh, which is a unicorn now, employs 1,500 people, 
I'm on, on, I'm on the board. And the decision to invest in this company was absolutely backed by the data. This is 2018. I had just collected this data and I saw this founder and it just, you know, it perfectly matched uh, the pattern that was kind of created in my mind about what a successful entrepreneur looked like. And this, you know, the founder, Aaron Bali, not, not gone through the good school. I think he had studied in Turkey, hadn't worked in any of these big companies before, but Carbon Health was like, I think it was his fifth company. I think he had failed like three companies before, uh, but also founded Udemy. So I saw a lot of these patterns uh, to what my data was telling me. And that kind of gave me this, this power to go and fight for this deal. And it was a hard deal to get done because it kind of looked out of scope. But, you know, I fought for this deal and got it done and it was, it's a massive success now. And I think that that's something that can be repeated. I'm, I'm using that data in the way I source companies or make decisions on investing in companies. Um, I thought it was interesting. You know, there's this um, trope that people have to, you know, be competing in a place with no competition. You know, the Peter Thiel don't, don't compete. But you say that competition is actually good. T- talk a bit about that. Absolutely. So it turns out, I think 55% of billion dollar companies were competing with incumbents. I think another 20 something percent were competing in a fragmented market. And less than 30% of companies did not have competition, even less than that. So there was like five or 6% that were competing with other highly funded startups. And that's, that seems like the worst situation when you were comparing the data from unicorns to kind of the, the average group. So if if you're a startup and you're copying what another company that has raised you know, $20 million is doing, you're less likely to succeed. But if you go after the Googles of the world, go after Airbnbs of the world, go after Cisco's, or go like Flexport in a fragmented old market with a bunch of small kind of player, none of them have more than 10% of market share, and you go and disrupt those markets, uh, in both of these cases... It's perfect. The market is educated. The market is massive. There are you know, multiple billion dollar companies in the market. And basically by taking their efficiencies away, you are creating a billion dollar com- company uh, yourself. So competition is not a bad thing. Copying another highly funded startup is probably a bad thing, but generally just competing in a, in a market and going after something that Facebook cannot do well or Google cannot do well or Airbnb cannot do well, that's that's a perfect situation. And even better if you're going after things that even older or more incumbent companies cannot do. That, that, that makes sense. And, and then also, you also unpack the myth that you know, founders don't have to be you know, the um, personally living through the, the problem that they're facing or, or be their, their own customer um, or have been thinking about their idea for, for many, many years, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I think this, there is this myth and that, you know, you need to be solving a personal problem, uh, something that you've lived through, something that you are the customer for. And that might be an ideal case. And that does make intuitive sense, but that's probably also why we have so many companies going after, you know, grocery delivery or, you know, a bunch of things that are, you know, consumer personal problems. And there's not enough people going after things that are not one specific person's problem, either from climate change to, you know, agriculture or the food economy or the kind of global level. There's a lot of global challenges, trillion dollar problems that a lot of people don't go after because it's nobody's personal problem. And when you look at the stories of these billion dollar companies, in a lot of cases, when you when you look at the interview or the movie that's, that gets made, 
there's all these threads that that's trying that that people are trying to you know uh, draw that you know how their childhood uh, affected this problem that they're going to solve or how what they were doing before kind of turned into this thing that they ended up doing. But in reality, a lot of these people went through this deliberate and lengthy ideation process. They changed the idea. They went to the market. They, they tried something. They asked people. They saw it doesn't work. They changed it. They went to another market. They moved horizontally. They moved vertically. And you don't see that because that doesn't make it public. They don't tell, tell the story. They spend one or two years. They come up with the idea. It works. And then when they're doing an interview or when the media kind of build something, they just try to you know, create this, this direct thread uh, from one problem they, they, they faced when they were a child and why they're solving this specific problem. And in a lot of cases, these are opportunistic. A lot of investors do not like founders who are opportunistic, who saw, who see an opportunity and just say, okay, I'm going to go and make some money there. And that's wrong. A lot of these building dollar companies were opportunistic and people saw an opportunity that they had the right network or they had the right, you know, the skills to go after and they went after it and they made a billion dollar company. That's a great place to, to wrap. Ali, in closing, for people who liked what they heard, where, where can people uh, buy the book and learn more? You can you can order anywhere you, you can buy books, Amazon, Audible, Kindle, uh, audiobook stores, ebook stores, Target, Walmart, and local bookstores. You can, you can support your local bookstore as well if they have it. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Ali. This has been great. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.